0: Welcome to Season 2 of American Political History, The Second Wave, Providence. November 1635, the magistrates agreed to delay the banishment of Williams until spring. Banishment in the middle of winter would be so harsh, they decided, that it could wait. Then, followers started to come to Williams for private teachings in his home. Williams thought, that a man's home was his castle. The Bay authorities disagreed, and having heard of his plans of forming a new colony for dissenters, they had no interest in this refuge from themselves. The magistrates changed the banishment to be immediate, and to include his forced return to England, where Williams was sure to be on one of Laud's lists of separatists. Upon his return to England, he would be arrested and punished, more than likely resulting in his death. Some magistrates even advocated for executing Williams now, but most disagreed. His execution could cause an uproar within the Commonwealth, so they compromised on shipping him back to England, so they could claim they had nothing to do with his death. Williams claimed he was too ill to travel to Boston, so Boston sent a boat to pick him up. Winthrop would send a letter to Williams, warning him that the magistrates planned on returning him to England. Williams would catch another break as a large blizzard would would roll in, which both covered his tracks and gave him a multiple-day head start on the Boston officials sent to obtain him. Plymouth would be unwilling to shelter a man that Massachusetts Bay had banished. He would remember until his dying days that all of his friends had cast him out, to die. He would remember their coldness. And yet, it was these savages that allowed him to stay in their wigwams. It was the savages that were the ones willing to give him shelter. Williams would have to make it alone that first winter. He would receive a few letters passed to him by the natives. In one, Cotton Mathers would mock Williams for a situation he put himself in. Williams would remain bitter for years over being cut off from the commonwealth. But for now, Williams sought freedom. He began to plan a settlement that would be untouched by the Bay or England, where he could build a refuge, not only for himself, but for others. In the spring, a handful of people came from Salem to join him. They planted crops and built a few homes. But by summer, Plymouth was asking Williams to remove the settlement from their territory. Edward Winslow, governor at that time of Plymouth, asked Williams to simply cross over the river, which was the border, so that he would be outside of Plymouth's territories. The bay was putting considerable pressure on Plymouth. Don't expect good relations with us if you harbor those that are banished. Williams didn't want to move. They had already planted for the year and would lose those crops, but they didn't really have another choice. The other side of the river was Narragansett territory. The Narragansett sachem was named... Canonicus, he was an aged, tough individual, and he was not receptive to the English, making it very clear from the very beginning of contact what he considered his land and that any encroachment on it would receive harsh repercussions. They had sent Plymouth a skin wrapped in arrows. Plymouth had sent back a skin filled with gunpowder. Plymouth generally stayed away from the Narragansett territory. Myantinomi, the second sachem, saw the English as a threat to all natives' existence. But Williams had developed a good relationship with them. He had acted as an advisor for their internal disputes, and he advised them on how to handle disputes with English. He was welcomed by the Narragansett, and only because of his relationship he was allowed to settle within their territory. As Williams would later say, They would not have allowed this of any Englishman for any price, but for that of brotherly love. The bay was no happier with them settled on the other side of the river. They were still far too close for their comfort. They exerted pressure on the Wampanoag. Their sachem now protested against the settlement, claiming the land that they settled was given through warlike tribute requests, but he now contested that claim. After all, he was only defeated by the plague, and and this was still Wampanoag land that they settled. They had no permission to settle on it. By this time, William Bradford had replaced Winslow as the governor of Plymouth, and he had had sympathy for Williams. He decided that Plymouth would now leave Williams alone. Williams' settlement would eventually become Rhode Island. The area of this settlement would include Narragansett Bay and a large island in the middle of that bay. Williams called this first settlement Providence. A few more stragglers from the bay would arrive to the settlement, and looked to Williams' for how this town would be governed. Williams had much experience with men of power and government. He had been a pupil of Lord Cook in England, witnessing the King's Bench, proceedings inside of the Star Chamber, and the inner workings of Parliament. And of course, he had been interacting with the power structures in Massachusetts Bay. Williams shared Cook's foundational beliefs for the role of government and religion, that a man's home is his castle. He should be allowed to speak freely inside of that home. He shared the Elizabethan statement that the queen will not try to build a window into a man's soul, that all of the English traditions was to stop the use of arbitrary power, and of course his belief that the state should not dictate the first table of commandments between God and humans. Williams had political ideas, but in practicality, the Narragansett had sold the area only to Williams, making him, by English common law, the sole proprietor over this entire settlement. Williams was willing to hand over legal authority to the settlement. His requirement for that was that Providence remain open to those who are destitute, especially destitute because of choice of conscience. As the settlement took shape into a political entity, The first issue to be addressed was holding all the property in common. Quickly, planters wanted their own land for homes and farms that they owned. Williams would quickly yield to the subdividing of ownership of land. But before he did this, he wanted to create an overarching system to link these people together, what we think of as a common government. In 1636, he wrote Winthrop, asking for advice of how to proceed. The draft he sent him had liberty of conscience and liberty to think freely about God. But Williams removed all mention of God from the final compact. This was an extraordinary thing for the time. Even the Mayflower Compact, which was written to define the secular rules of law, it mentions God. In their words, it was written... For the glory of God, the advancement of the Christian faith, and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. And this removal of God was from a fervently devout man. None of William's letters that have survived to us fails to refer to God in an intimate way. Even for the 17th century, William's writing was that of a very pious man, consistently talking about seeking God, searching for God, and religion influenced the very way he thought, wrote, and what he did every day of his life. For someone like him, to omit all mention of God in the foundational document of a settlement was a statement of his absolute conviction that assuming God's embrace in any state other than ancient Israel was profaning God, that it would not call God's blessing upon your town, but instead signified human arrogance in its most extreme form. All of those settled in Providence unanimously agreed to the new compact. We, whose names are under, desirous to inhabit in town of Providence, do promise to subject ourselves in active and passive obedience to all such orders, or agreements shall be made for the public good, by the consent of of present inhabitants, masters of family, incorporate together in town fellowship, and others who shall admit unto them only in civil things. Omitting God made this document mundane, but only mundane in that it solely dealt with the physical world. And the separation of church and state in this founding agreement was the beginning of a paradigm-altering course for humanity. Not only was William showing conviction, but he backed this mission and providence with his actions. He kept only land equal to the shares that he was offering to the other people who were settling. He recouped his cost in the sales of this land, but refused any profits from it. Each purchaser would have an equal voice in government, and Williams donated all of his extra land to the town government He then would continue to separate God from the workings of government. There would be no requirement in Providence to attend religious services that would be enforced by the government. There would be no preferred religious denomination linked to your right to vote. These steps were done even though the colonial municipal governments were funded largely by revenue from religious attendance fines. Williams then wrote about a subtle difference of religious philosophy, that he had created this enormous difference in how he viewed the relationship between church and state and how English society had traditionally viewed this relationship. Williams didn't see the world as a place you inherit from. The world is not an ordered existence from God given to you. It was a place that was created and ordered by humans. Therefore, human earthly governments could receive their authority only from the citizenry that they ruled over. Governments were accountable to their citizens, and humanity was accountable to their creator. This sounds like a, well, the moment to us, the inheritors of this paradigm. But Williams was not only now going against the Bay, he was pushing upstream against Western culture as a whole. The notion of the divine right of rulership, that some special type of human ancestry was chosen by God to rule, that they somehow channeled God's legitimacy, he was challenging the very notion of the city on the hill that the Puritans held and cherished so deeply. And you have to remember, even Winthrop, that had started Republican-Democratic features in Boston had only given freemen the right to vote to elect the governor, but believed that once the governor or any elected official was in office, they were and should only be accountable to God, not the people that elected them. Williams would logically attack that idea. If God had ordained the government of Massachusetts Bay, then the punishment of him was ordained by God, and Williams outright rejected this. The bay's punishment didn't punish him towards conformity with God, it instead drove him from it. They demonstrated harshness of heart, not godliness. Christian magistrates had decided to send him back to England, where prison and mutilation awaited him. Christians had done this, in God's name. Savages had took him in, cared for him, and showed him mercy that allowed him to survive. Williams' conclusion was that God ordained no human kingdom, no matter how pious the community, that governments are created by man for man. Providence would develop with these philosophical rhythms of liberty and individual freedom. And this freedom was expressed in unusual ways— Providence changed how towns were laid out, instead of the traditional center church or meeting hall, with everything built around it facing it. Houses would be arranged in a row that altogether faced the same road, what we're used to today. Families would worship in their own homes. No churches of Providence would be built for 50 years. Williams was starting to build a society where the individual would be left alone the state would demand nothing of a man's relationship with God, or in the terminology of that era, the state would demand nothing of a man's conscience. Williams was building something extraordinary and unprecedented. In 1637, no society like this existed. He was creating in real time and defining the foundational paradigm that would become an axiom for American culture the right of the individual of his own conscience. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.